This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hey, everybody, it's Lon Sybin. It's time once again for your weekly wrap-up, and we've got a bunch of stuff to talk about this week, including a couple of specials that I will be doing. In fact, one of those... Uh, will be the launch of the Falcon Heavy down in Florida, hopefully on Tuesday. That is SpaceX's big rocket. It's going to be fun to see that go off in person. Uh, we're also going to talk about choosing a NAS hard drive, Apple and recovering data on your phone after something bad happens to it. And we'll look at extending your network with regular telephone wiring and whether or not it can be done. Lots to talk about now, so let's get to it. Now, I want to begin, as we always do, by thanking our newest supporters here on the channel. That includes Andrew S., who gave via Patreon, Anthony Biacco, and Kenneth Markert, who gave via our tip jar and donor box page, Brian Parker, who made a gold-level contribution via the Super Chat on last week's premiere of the wrap-up, and Vinny T., who also left a Super Chat for us on that wrap-up premiere. I want to thank everyone who supported the channel this week and everyone who's been supporting the channel on an ongoing basis. And I also want to thank those of you who watch on a regular basis too, because all of those things equal channel growth. So now let's take a look at the week in review. On the Extras channel, we unboxed the Chromebook S330 that we reviewed on the main channel this week. We also took a look at the Analog Mega SG once more. They have an unofficial firmware that now allows you to load games off the SD card. It also lets you swap out the Sega CD BIOS so you can load games from other regions. Uh, So in that video, we loaded up the Japanese version of Sonic CD, which I wouldn't be able to do with my uh, existing Sega CD unit because it is a North American unit. Uh, This BIOS swap lets you load up that Japanese BIOS and get those games loaded up, so that was pretty cool. They added a Game Gear core, and we also tested out button lag, uh, both with an original controller and the 8-bit Doe controller. And in fact, we tested lag on both varieties of the 8-bit Doe controller, the Bluetooth one and the 2.4 gigahertz version of it. So you can check all of that out in the master playlist down below. And I'm also hoping that you'll have seen my review of the QNAP Silent NAS by the time you see this video. I am actually shooting this a couple days early because I'm taking off for Florida for the rocket launch. Uh, But I did uh, get that video shot before I left, and hopefully it was edited for you and uh, you will have seen it by now. And if not, you'll see it later this week. And now it's time for a couple of things that are on my mind. And this is week 110 of me doing this as a full-time occupation. And this week I did a couple of things that were a little different than my normal workflow. Uh, We're going to call them specials because they are. Uh, The first thing we shot was on Wednesday, which you haven't seen yet. Uh, This was a video we did about a high-speed camera. My friend Matt Reese stopped by, and he is uh, helping to sell these cameras for the company that makes them. And this is an industrial-strength, you know, super high-speed camera, so it's not inexpensive. In fact, it's very expensive, but it was fun to play with it and see uh, what some of its capabilities are. And in the video, you're going to see how it works. We'll look at the control panel that you use to take the pictures, and Matt does a very good job of explaining all the different things you have to think about when doing high-speed photography. There's a lot of this high-speed photography on uh, YouTube, but I didn't see too many videos about how these cameras actually work, so you'll see that. 
Uh, right now, the video is about 40 minutes in its draft form. We're going to try to shave it down a little bit, but it was fun. It was actually fun to do, and it's been really fun to watch it. We took a few really cool videos of some things happening in slow motion that will be uh, really cool to watch, especially when you get a context as to how the camera actually works. And the other thing we're going to be doing this week is heading down to Florida, as I mentioned, because SpaceX is firing off uh, their second Falcon Heavy rocket. Uh, the last one they did was over a year ago. Uh, this is the uh, updated version of that rocket that uses the new SpaceX Block 5, uh, which means it's a little bit more powerful than the prior version of it. And they'll be lifting off a very heavy satellite and putting it into uh, geosynchronous orbit. So it's going to uh, be quite a scene. And what we should hopefully be able to see is the rocket launch, of course, but also the two boosters here on the side come back and land not far from where we will be watching from. So we should be able to see everything from an observer's perspective, which I think will be pretty cool because you can certainly get a much better video feed on the SpaceX site. But I think it might be cool to see what we experience when we're on the ground watching it. And I'll do my best to relay that to all of you. The last rocket launch we did here on the channel was four years ago already. I can't believe it's been that long. So I'm really eager to get back there and check it out. And we'll be uh, working on that hopefully on Tuesday. It really is going to be uh, dependent as to when SpaceX is actually able to get it off the ground. Uh, the weather Tuesday is looking a little shaky, uh, but the weather Wednesday is looking better. So if they can get it off Tuesday, they will. If not, I'll stay an extra day and go ahead and do that. Covering the space program when you live in Connecticut is really difficult and expensive because every time they delay the uh, launch of the rocket, you got to move your flight around, you got to extend the rental car, you got to extend the hotel. It gets pretty crazy, but it's so fun. Uh, to be able to see this stuff happen. And I really enjoy sharing my passion for space with all of you. And I do hope you all have a moment to tune in uh, when that video goes up. So stay tuned. It's going to be a lot of fun down in Florida to see the launch of this monster rocket. And now it's time for a Q&A from you, the viewers. And our first question comes in from Ed Doyle, who is curious about the field programmable gate array chips we've been seeing a lot of lately here on the channel. Uh, those are chips that are running on the Mister, which replicates a lot of old 80s and uh, some early 90s game consoles, and also what we've seen on the analog Mega SG that we just talked about a few minutes ago that replicates a Sega Genesis. And of course, we have the analog NT Mini, which was an NES clone console we looked at two years ago, and the Super NT from Analog, which did the Super Nintendo. And one of the things that Analog has done exceptionally well is make very accurate representations of the hardware that they're replicating, and they do that through the use of an FPGA chip. And the reason why these chips are so good for that purpose is that many old game consoles, like the Sega Genesis behind me, are very complicated in that they had a number of chips that were all working in concert together, and some of them were very different from each other. So in the case of the Sega Genesis, we've got an 8-bit Z80 CPU, uh, running along with a 16-bit 68,000 processor, and the Genesis was able to make all that stuff work together along with all the other chips that were running on it. And if you replicate all of that logic in an FPGA, uh, the FPGA chip can actually process the logic in a very similar way the original console did, and that's something that is often very difficult to replicate exactly in a software emulator. And you can do it in a package that can fit into one of those tiny little consoles and can run off of what is essentially USB power. 
And that's very enticing for that kind of activity. However, uh, that's about the best we can do with these classes of FPGAs at the moment, is replicating stuff from the 70s and 80s and early 90s. Uh, You can't do a PlayStation, for example, on the FPGA chips that are powering the Mr. and uh, the Mega SG, for example. You have to go up to much more expensive FPGAs to get close to that. And if you look at what goes on inside of a modern CPU and GPU that you'll find in a modern game console, you would need a huge FPGA that would cost uh, quite a bit more than what you would be willing to pay for a game console to be able to make use of those chips in that way. Now, although gaming is a more recent use for FPGA technology, it has been around for quite some time. And because they are massively parallel, uh, there's a lot of industrial uses for them. Uh, My TriCaster, for example, has an FPGA to be able to process all the video you see on screen right now in real time. Uh, Many cars have FPGAs in them to process all the data coming in from sensors, for example. Uh, There are countless areas where these chips are used, and because they are reprogrammable, if you have a bug that pops up after your hardware is released, it's very easy to update the hardware just by updating your FPGA code. But again, there is a price premium on these devices, and the more you want to do with it as far as complexity is concerned, uh, the larger physically and the more expensive that FPGA chip becomes. And that, I think, will be uh, why we won't see a lot of more complicated 90s consoles uh, on FPGA anytime soon, unless there's some price breakthrough on those chips. And our next question comes in from the Facebook group. Tom Woodford is asking, what drives should he pair with the Synology DS1019 Plus he is looking at? He's looking to put in 10 terabyte hard drives. That's a monster storage array there. Uh, He's going to be using this as a Plex server, and I suspect he's going to have a lot of movies and TV shows on that Plex server as he puts them in. Uh, For me personally, I've been using the WD Reds for a very long period of time. I have a DS415 Plus NAS that is my daily driver storage here on the channel. Uh, This thing has been running nonstop for the last four and a half years or so, and it's been working really, really well for me. Uh, In fact, two of the drives that are in there were migrated over from a smaller Synology NAS I was using prior to the one I'm using now, and I haven't had a problem with them even though they've been on and working just about every day uh, over the course of four or five years. That's pretty good. Um, One of the things that I would strongly recommend you do no matter which brand you choose is to make sure you get a drive that is designed for NAS usage. I have seen Uh, Some of the cheaper green drives from WD, for example, uh, die after a relatively short period of time inside a NAS because they're just not designed for that duty cycle. Uh, The NAS drives have uh, more robust hardware inside of them. They have better warranties. Uh, Some of the more pro-level drives now even have some vibration protection if you had a fan start to act up inside the NAS, for example. So there's just a lot of things that uh, going up to a more expensive NAS-certified drive, no matter where you buy it from, Uh, make a lot of sense. And one of the nice things, at least on the Synologies, is that they give you a pretty good indicator as to how your drive health is, both with the uh, WD drives and other brands and the Seagate Ironwolf drives. Let me show you what my control panel looks like for my WD drives right now. So on the Synology devices, inside of your main menu is a storage manager app. And when you load that up, you'll get an overview of how you have your system configured. You can see I have four drives used right now for Uh, the volume that I'm using. And if you click on this hard drive icon, you can actually drill in to see what your drives are doing from a health perspective. So right now, all four of my drives are behaving as they are uh, expected to behave. And you can get an idea as to what the current temperature is, how many bad sectors have been detected on the drive by the NAS, 
And then you can actually go a bit further if you click on a drive and light it up blue and go to health info. And what this will do is pull in some of the smart data from the drive. And you can see right now things are looking pretty good. But look at my power on time, 35,200 hours. This drive has been on for a long time. And it's probably about time to start replacing a few of these just because uh, they are probably hitting the end of their life cycle. Uh, these particular drives report back some of this information that you can see here insofar as uh, the power on hours, for example. I also have an idea as to how often it has uh, basically power cycled. So if it shuts down with the NAS or perhaps it powers down for when the NAS goes to sleep, uh, you get an indicator as to how often that drive has been spinning up and down. Uh, there's also a history here to tell you how all of the uh, diagnostic tests have run on it. You can actually schedule uh, regular diagnostic tests on each of the drives to get a feel for where they're at. The problem with drives, though, is that typically you may not always see a warning before they go on you. So it's good to monitor how long they've been in operation for and maybe consider replacing them on a regular cycle. I should probably, again, start thinking about doing that for mine. Another thing to check out are the logs here because it will also give you an indicator as, as to when you might have had an I.O. error, for example. So it looks like uh, recently, uh, back in September here, uh, my drive number four started to have some I.O. errors. And this is the first indicator that something may not be so good in paradise here for my disk array. So if I start swapping out drives, I may start with drive four. I haven't had an issue with it since October uh, but there was an issue at the end of September, another issue at the beginning of October, and then a, another issue uh, in the, towards the end of October. And I haven't written out uh, huge, huge files to this recently, but during that period of time, we were doing a massive backup of my YouTube channel. So I think we might see more errors as I start to put more and more data on it in the future. Uh, and that's the drive I'm going to start looking at replacing uh, first before I get to some of the other ones on there. But again, though, for this length of time to have really no problems at all, I think it's a testament to how robust these NAS drives are. And I suspect that your experience will likely be the same across many manufacturers. Drives do go bad. It happens. Uh, but I think you're less likely to have a drive go bad if it's NAS certified versus some of the cheaper desktop models. And Rob Hansen in the Facebook group replied to that question with a very good point. Uh, when you're looking at rumors of drive failures from a particular manufacturer, just remember the selection bias at hand. Happy users don't report failure. I'm reporting my success for the first time in four and a half years, for example. Uh, but unhappy users tend to be very, very, very vocal about things. Uh, he does say, though, that some of the reports in regards to uh, Seagate drives might be a period where they had a phase where their Q&A wasn't up to snuff and they saw a higher than usual failure rate. Uh, but according to Backblaze, which we'll get to in a second, uh, it looks like things are pretty much back to normal. Now, Rob's experience are, experiences here are that he's got a DS213J with two pre-Ironwolf NAS drives that have been running for six and a half years without issue. I would say it might be time to get some new drives for that one, but it gives you an idea as to how robust these NAS drives are. Uh, he's got a DS416 pl uh, play with four Ironwolves for two years with no problems, but he had a consumer-grade drive in his PC breakdown after only 18 months, and that was four years ago. So it's really a hit-or-miss thing. Some drives just fail early. There might be some environmental issue in your home. There might have been a power surge. Anything really can lead to a drive failure that may not be the responsibility or the fault of the manufacturer, uh, and sometimes drives just die early, and uh, there's a percentage that do. Uh, and one way to track some of those percentages is to look at what Backblaze puts out uh, just about once a quarter, I believe. 
um, they give you a report of every drive they're running on their cloud backup services. They have 104,000 drives in use, and they have a failure rate this year, at least of, uh, last year of 2018, of 1.25%. So that gives you an idea at that scale uh, just how minimal drive failure is. In fact, they said 2018 uh, was the best year they had for drive reliability. So it looks like across the board, uh, drives are getting better and better. Now, they are mostly a Seagate shop. Uh, they said that the WD drives, they can't get at the quantity and price that they're looking for. Uh, so you can see they did have a 2% failure rate among those, which is a little higher than the average. But overall, it looks like uh, you shouldn't have a problem with your hard drives in your NAS. One thing I do recommend you do, in addition to buying a NAS certified drive, is maybe buy two from Amazon and maybe two from another uh, retailer just to get some drives that were made at different periods of time. And that way, if you had a couple of drives come off a bad day at the factory, your other two might be okay. And one of the great things about a NAS is that you have that redundancy built in when you set your RAID array up so you can lose a drive and still operate. And it's often good to not lose more than one drive at a time. And you can check out the Backblaze uh, website there to learn more about their experiences with drive failure. Now, this next item comes in via Paul Radetzky, also on the Facebook group. It's such a great resource for me for topics for this show. And that is going to be our pick of the week, which is a video from the CBC, which has been doing an expose on Apple and how they restrict third parties from repairing their phones. And they had a piece a few months ago where they uh, took a Mac that was acting up to the Apple store and they wanted to do some really expensive repair and recommended they just buy a new one. Then they took it over to Lewis Rossman in New York City and he fixed it in about 10 minutes. Uh, and this is another example of something that's been going on uh, this time in relation to what happens to data that is on a phone that is damaged and will no longer turn on. So they found a couple in Newfoundland uh, who went on a European vacation. They took a bunch of photos and their phone ended up in a body of water uh, the photos weren't backed up. The phone was dead. It wouldn't turn on again. And they took the phone to the Apple store and said, hey, can we get our data back? Uh, the Apple store said, nope, you've got water damage. We will not be able to restore your data. Uh, and if you want, you can buy a new phone and you'll be on your way again. Uh, but the couple was very upset about that answer because they obviously wanted to get their pictures out of the phone, which is, again, a good reason to keep a good backup, right? Uh, so then what they did is they went on the Apple forums and asked around on there and said, hey, can we get the data out of the phone? Everyone said, nope, you're done. You can't get the data out. Uh, but they ran across a woman in uh, the United States named Jessa Jones, who's in the thumbnail image of the CBC video here. And she runs a service that actually does that. They restore data from phones that have been damaged. And what she does is she tries to replace all of the chips that are not part of the Apple uh, security and privacy system. And usually what she's able to do is get that phone to boot up again and she can extract the data uh, from the phone after it boots. And sure enough, she was able to get the couple's phone restored even after Apple told them it wouldn't be possible. And this comes back to that right to repair argument we've been talking about uh, over the last couple of months here on the channel, where if Apple would authorize or allow uh, third parties to repair phones for uh, very involved things like this, we might have people able to go out and get their data back because right now the manufacturer is telling them it's not possible when it in fact is possible to get that data restored as uh, Ms. Jones here is doing. And one of the crazy things that came up in this story is that uh, Jessa Jones here had her Apple forums account banned uh, when she told customers that it is possible, in fact, to get your data restored from a dead iPhone. 
uh, if you go to an electronics repair shop that knows how to re-solder some of the chips on those devices. Uh, She says she was following the rules and didn't pitch her services, yet Apple uh, removed her comments initially and then outright banned her account uh, for suggesting going the third-party route versus just going into an Apple store. And what kills me about this story is that there is an example here of a customer that didn't take no for an answer and was more resilient in trying to resolve the issue. They kind of knew it would be possible perhaps some way to get their photos back or maybe hope there was a way. Uh, But many customers hear that no answer at the Apple store. And typically when you have a dead phone, uh, you have to give them your old phone and then they sell you a new one uh, for a lower price than what one might normally cost new. And that's the deal. You swap one out and pay the money and get the new phone. And it kills me that a lot of people are probably just handing over data that would have been able to be restored uh, had they had somebody like Jessa Jones in their life to uh, spend some time with the phone and get it fixed. I don't think Apple has the time uh, to do the kind of repair work that a Jessa Jones does for her customers. And it would be great if Apple would allow uh, these third parties to be acknowledged, at least, as an option for customers to pursue. At this stage, with a completely waterlogged phone, what's there to be lost by allowing you know, some of these third-party small businesses to provide a service that might actually uh, end up with a better result for the customer? The phone in question in this video uh, is never going to be usable as a phone again. They basically got it working enough to be able to extract the data from it, but that was pretty much it. And Uh, It kills me that Apple does this. Now, Apple, a few months ago, when this issue uh, was talked about, uh, said they just don't want to send their customers to places where they can't validate the uh, ability and the competency of the shop that is doing the work. And as such, Apple won't even sell parts to these third parties to do repairs, and they really just want customers to go to them and only them. And one of the things that I talked about when we explored this issue before was how do you validate that somebody is able to actually do the work and is competent uh, to do so? Because smartphones can be dangerous. They have lithium ion batteries that if they're not repaired properly or uh, perhaps a charging circuit isn't installed properly, they can catch on fire and burn your house down. It's something we saw with those Samsung phones a few months ago that were uh, coming like that from the factory. So you definitely need some competency here. Now, in my state, I don't need a license to open up a smartphone repair shop, nor do I need a license to open up a computer repair shop. I could do all the soldering and electrical work I want because the only thing my state requires licenses for are televisions and radios. Uh, Maybe you can make the argument that the smartphone is a radio, but I know there's a lot of places out there that are repairing smartphone screens that are not licensed by the state of Connecticut to do so. And I think this might be an area where the right to repair folks might want to focus, that let's call the bluff on Apple and all these other manufacturers that say they want to know these people are competent. Let's define the competency and come up with a way that we can all agree that somebody is competent or not. We do that with television and radio repair in this state and many other states. It might make sense to do that in other places too so that the argument they're making as the excuse as to why they want to hold a monopoly on repair uh, perhaps can go away if we can all agree as to who's competent and who isn't. And there's no Department of Consumer Protection regulation, in my state at least, over those incompetent shops to hold them responsible and to make sure that they can do what they are offering as a service. Now, this next question comes in from David James Halligan, who's wondering if it's possible to convert his unused phone jacks into Ethernet. And I think it might be possible to do so, but it really depends on how your home is configured. And I'm putting this out there as a Q&A for you this week because 
Uh, I'd like to get some more feedback on this. I hadn't really thought about this before, but this question got me uh, thinking and got me looking. So basically, your phone jack typically uses the same kind of twisted pair cable that your Ethernet connection might use. However, the quality of the cable might differ. Now, I went down in my basement, and I, of course, am not using my home phone jacks anymore either. And sure enough, the wires that are running to the phone jacks in my house are Cat5e cable, and I've got a bunch of pairs on these cables not being used, but they are in the wall upstairs. And when I started looking around, I was thinking like, you know what, this might actually work. However, as I dug a little bit deeper, I discovered that I've got a lot of phone jacks in this house, and what they did when they built the house is that they ended up splicing a lot of wires together and kind of splitting them out. And that, of course, is a no-go for Ethernet. You need a direct home run from every jack down to your basement. Now, if you have that and you have a Cat5 cable running, uh, it's conceivable that you could swap out the phone jack that's in there and hook up an RJ45 jack, grab all those extra pairs and follow some online instructions as to how to order those pairs. And you might be able to get it to work. But if you are having splits in your uh, telephone wiring throughout the house, it's going to be a no-go. But I'd love to hear your thoughts on this for our Q&A for you this week down below in the comments, because I think for some folks who have the right wiring, this might work. And if your house was built recently, like in the last 10 or 12 years or so, you might actually have cable that could support gigabit Ethernet, again, provided it is a direct home run from your basement or wherever your phone terminates to the phone jack. Now this week on the channel, I have no idea what we're going to be doing beyond the SpaceX thing. It all depends as to when this rocket goes off and uh, when I get back. Uh, So stay tuned. We might have this plus the uh, high-speed camera video this week and have a whole week of specials, which might be kind of fun. So this will be a little bit of a different week here on the channel uh, with two very unique things that uh, just happened to pop up at the same time. So stay tuned. We'll be getting ready to go for that, and hopefully we'll get another review squeezed in uh, before the week is out. Now, if you want to support the channel, you can. You can go to lon.tv support and make a monthly or a one-time contribution to the channel. I appreciate all the support that you all provide. Uh, we also have other channels you can find me on. I have unboxings and supplementary content on my extras channel. We have my podcast feed at lon.tv slash podcast, where we have an audio version of this show. We also have my snippets channel, which has uh, bite-sized portions of this show that you can easily find via a YouTube search. And then we have my live stream archive at lon.tv slash live streams. And I might do a little live stream from my phone when I'm standing at the launch pad with the Falcon Heavy, because I think that might be kind of fun. I won't be like on the pad, but I'll be pretty darn close to it. So uh, stay tuned. I might pop up randomly over the next couple of days, likely Tuesday or Wednesday afternoon. Uh, So enable your alerts, which you can do with the bell clicking thing I'm going to demonstrate here, uh, just so that you can be notified every time I go live or do anything on the channel, uh, because it will be fun to have a little interaction with you from my trip on my phone if the cell signal is good enough. If you want to engage with the channel, you can. You can sign up for my email list at lon.tv slash email. We have my Facebook page at lon.tv slash Facebook. And of course, we have my Facebook group, which we've mentioned a lot tonight. The lon.tv slash Facebook group link will take you there. You do have to sign up and answer two very easy questions. And once you do, you'll be let into the group. We're about 620 or so strong right now, which is awesome, and a lot of great discussion goes on there. And then if you liked some of the things that I reviewed and wondering if you could buy them from me, yes, you can sometimes by going to the lon.tv store. 
and I have a store alert that will pop up whenever I add something to the store. There probably won't be anything added this week, but I will be uh, putting some more stuff on there in the weeks to come as I continue to clean out the house here. So there will be more to see and more to buy from me. And I hope you do so I can get rid of it. My wife can uh, leave me alone about those things as well. I want to thank you all for your continued support and viewership of the channel. I'm excited for this week. It might be a little bit different, and sometimes a little bit different is a fun uh, change from the usual routine. So that's going to be good for me, and hopefully you'll enjoy it as well. Keep those questions and comments coming, and I really appreciate everyone's support as we uh, continue our journey on running this little independent media operation. Lots more to come. Thank you all for watching, and until next time, this is Lon Seidman. Thanks again for watching. This channel is brought to you by the Lon.TV supporters, including Gold Level supporters, the Four Guys with Quarters podcast, Tom Albrecht, and Kalyan Kumar. If you want to help the channel, you can by contributing as little as a dollar a month. Head over to lon.tv support to learn more. And don't forget to subscribe. Visit lon.tv slash s.